if you look at the tagline, the most important part of the title of that book is not the fortune recipe. It's actually the subtitle, which is essential ingredients for creating your best life. And, and clearly I did write it from an entrepreneur's view, from a leadership perspective, from all those angles. And of course, knowing what we've already said, I highly, highly value emotional fitness, mental toughness, and life mastery and bringing the best self to your business. But if we're really going to focus on the business community and aspiring entrepreneurs, I would say, I, well, I mentioned one of them already, which is okay to do good by doing good things for others. You are listening to Fingerprints on Success, the podcast dedicated to highlighting unique imprints left by business leaders, mentors, and successful entrepreneurs. In this show, we'll be bringing on a diverse range of serial entrepreneurs, professionals, leaders, and coaches to uncover the secrets behind achieving success both professionally and personally. Guiding you on this podcast is none other than Bill Barrett, an award-winning corporate and business law attorney and CEO of the law firm Mandelbaum Barrett PC, where he and his team have provided a full array of legal services to both businesses and individuals throughout the country. Get ready and let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. This is Bill Barrett. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Mail the Bomb Barrett, and this is our podcast, Fingerprints on Success, where we explore the journeys and backgrounds of entrepreneurs and successful business owners from around the country. And on today's episode is Bernie Stoltz. And I have a little uh, copy of Bernie's book here, Fortune Recipe, Essential Ingredients for Creating Your Best Life. I think you're going to really like today's episode. I particularly love the part when Bernie talked about his background as an entrepreneur and his kind of mission to find purposeful work. Uh, really interesting and fascinating stories and a lot of guiding principles. And um, I think kind of like, you know, I'll call it fundamentals of uh, of business ownership and entrepreneurial success. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. And uh, here it is. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our show, Fingerprints on Success. On today's episode, I'm thrilled to have my friend, Bernie Stoltz, the Chief Executive Officer of Fortune Management. Fortune is one of the largest, if not the largest, practice management and executive coaching organizations in the world, focusing specifically on doctors. But that's not why I really have Bernie on the show today. Of course, it's part of the reason. But my big th driving force for having Bernie today is that he has spent the better part of his life, not only being an entrepreneur, but also helping other entrepreneurs reach their highest levels of success. And you know, our whole goal here on our show is to be able to give great content, information, and wonderful stories about the most successful people in the country to help our entrepreneurs. So Bernie, uh, for those who don't know you and welcome to the show, I'd love to start by having you give us a little bit of your background and story and kind of how you got to where you are now as the chief executive officer of Fortune Management. Yeah, you bet. Well, first of all, thanks for having me uh, on the show today, Bill. You know, I think the world of you and and what Mandelbaum Barrett does. And, and uh, of course, we, we do so much work together and you do so much great work for so many of our, our dentists and veterinarians around the country. So I really, really want to start off by Thank just you. Thanking you. I mean, one of my one of my credos or mottos for life is always lead with your giving hand. And you are absolutely a kindred kindred spirit to me because I think we we operate our companies and we we do things very like minded. And um, and I am talking to you today from um, my, the West Coast. I know you are uh, somewhere in the yeah. studios in New Jersey and. I couldn't be further away from that. I'm in beautiful Pebble Beach, California, which is where I, I make my home part of the year. But to answer your, your first question, a little bit of background. One of the things that I, I would say, because I mean, it, it's a long and storied uh, path, but I would say that I really, really tried to do a good job of documenting that last year in my third book. And if anything in this podcast- Wait a minute, hold on. You, oh, mean this, you mean this book? 
the fortune recipe, essential ingredients for creating your best life. And I was going to pull it out later when I got to another question, but since you mentioned it, here it is. Well, you know, the, the reason why is because I, what I tried to do with that book, I had several intentions to that book. One was to make it my pay it forward book. I believed that after being in business and being, as you said, entrepreneurial now for the better part of 45 years, started when I was two, by the way. (laughs) Um, But uh, after doing that, I've just learned, you know, by trial and error and by a lot of different things, what to do, what not to do. And I just wanted to, and not just in business. I mean, it was, it's really about life. And I wanted to to make sure that I was able to leave something documented before I leave this journey called life. You know, I still got a lot of it to live, obviously, I hope. But bottom line is, is I wanted to make sure that there was something left. And my intent there with that book was that if it was able to change the trajectory of any human being's life and make it better in any way, whether it be in business, whether it be in any part of their life, from their emotional side to their relationships, to their health, to their purpose, to their financial. I wanted to be able to do that. Because one thing I've I've learned from you know doing live seminars and live audiences for over 35 years is that it doesn't take a lot to change somebody's life. It could be that next thing that you hear on a podcast. It can be that next book you read. It can be that next person you hear speak that just can set an intention in motion. So I wanted that book to do that. And um, and at the same time, I also kind of made it a little bit autobiographical in, in the fact that I wanted to give, give them a little bit of my roots. And of course, if we're to go there, um, I very, very humble beginnings and You know, one of the things that has stuck with me all throughout that, there's a great Tim McGraw song. You've probably heard it. It's called Humble and Kind. And there's a line in there and it says, you know, be proud of what you've, and I'm paraphrasing, but be proud of what all you've accomplished when your hard work comes to fruition. But make sure you take a look backwards and make sure you know where you've been. And, um, so for me, very, very humble beginnings. Born and raised in San Francisco, inner city to two kids themselves. My parents were 19 years old and and no money, no education. My dad was uh, making 50 bucks a week working at a, a, a service station. And, and my mom was uh, working in the steno pool at the VA. And I lived with my grandmother and and so not a lot of education or money or wealth, but there was always a lot of love in the house. I'm one of four sons and a lot of Italian roots there, which so it's all about food and love and wine and, and, um, and as you know, and, uh, yep, and I sure uh, those do. are really good memories. But uh, one of the things that was always drilled into my head, maybe it was just a little bit of a scarcity mentality from my folks was... Hey, you know, if you're really going to be happy in this world, you got to go out there and and you got to make the money. And if you make the money, then you're going to be able to, uh, you know, do the things you want to do. And then you'll get to be happy. And basically what that would, and I talk about it in the book, it's basically saying, look, if you have what you want, then you can do what you want, and then you can be happy. Have, do, be. It comes down to three words, right? And um, I did that hook, line, and sinker because I didn't know any better. And so I was a very, very driven young man in a big, big hurry, so much of a hurry that uh, for me, going to a four-year university just didn't seem like it was in my cards. Um I wanted to get out there. I wanted to to earn money and kind of follow. Yeah, make, make the, the money, money so I could be happy, right? And and so I I wasn't big on formal education, um, but I felt like I had a lot of street smarts and common sense. And um, and so I I created my first business, which was a very very modest 
little tire store. It was actually a Goodyear tire store right outside San Francisco. And I had two employees. And that was my first business And uh, at 22 years old. Um, and to abbreviate the story, I'll just tell you that from the time I was 22 to the time I was 30, I really did become a serial entrepreneur. And I say that because from 22 to 30, not, I, I not only had grew the tire company to five locations and a, uh, a wholesale division, commercial division, I had about 150 employees working in that company, but I was always bored with it. I, it, it was not purposeful work for me. And so at the same time, I kept pursuing other things. So by the time I'm 30, I've got a real estate and investment company. I have a limousine and transportation company. I have a public relations and marketing company for the casino industry, which was fun at the time. That was back in the 80s, you know, uh, 80s and early <laughs> I'm 90s. sure. <laughs> and then also even had uh, some restaurants, right? So I had five different businesses, a lot of employees. And later on in self-reflection, because people say, well, wh why'd you keep doing these things? Well, I, I think in, in retrospect, it was because I kept trying to find my purpose. And quite frankly, at the end of the day, none of those were fulfilling my, my purpose. And I wish I knew, you know, 40 years ago what I know today, because if, if I was going to tell any of your listeners today, um, to follow their hearts. One of the things that I would say is embrace a Japanese term called ikigai. And uh, ikigai is really a term which really in, Jap in Japanese means a way of living or a purposeful living. And really, I would challenge every one of your listeners and, and viewers today to be able to answer these four questions. Question number one, what are you passionate and what do you love doing? What do you love doing for a career or just in life? But what, what really juices you? Second question is, are you good at it? Because a lot of people get excited. Like, like I love golf, but, but I'm not going to go on the PGA Tour, right? I'm not good at it. Um, But but so so the first one is what do you really love doing? And second thing is, are you really good at it? And then the third question that I always well that Ikka guy you know asks you is is does the world need it? And then the fourth question is, can you get paid well to do it? And the intersection, if you can say yes in anything you do, whether it's you as a, a prominent attorney, me as an entrepreneur, you know, building businesses, whatever it is. But if you can check all four of those boxes, there's an intersection in the center of those four. And that is your Ikigai zone. And I mean, it's been overstated, right? If you find something you love, you'll never work another day in your life. But there's got to be sure. some structure behind that statement. And I think what it is, is gave it to you. So I look back at those first five businesses I I I, uh, I started and I go, well, I was always good at one thing, making money. And I was always a pretty good salesperson and influencer. But I was doing those, those all at the end of the day were transactional businesses, whether it was automotive or real estate or whatever, it was transaction. And, and that's probably why I continue to pursue a more purposeful life, a more purposeful existence. And it's one of the things as my kids, and of course, my kids are, are grown now, they're both working in our companies, you know, Jennifer's the president of fortune management now. But when they were very young, I'm going to say maybe, you know, as long as 10, 12 years old. One thing that I would always tell them is I'd say, look, it's not appropriate for dad to ever tell you what you should do for a career. The only coaching that I would for up right. is don't ever go into a business or a career where you're buying things and selling things and living on the margins in between. Because at the end of the day, It won't be purposeful. You could make really good money, but it's still transactional. 
And so I encouraged them from an early age, look, I don't care, go, go invent something, create something, serve, uh, you know, be law enforcement, be a doctor or a nurse, a, whatever it is, be a lawyer, but do something that serves or creates something. Don't be a middleman. And, um, and yeah. so, you know, that's where I was, five companies, early 30s, very early 30s. In fact, I was about 30 years old. And I go, you know, I, I hit the wall. And, and it kind of pissed me off at the time because it was like I had remembered what my parents had told me early on, which was, look, if you go out and make the money, then you get to do the things you want to do. And then you get to be happy. Well, guess what? I wasn't that happy. And I should have been happy. Because at that point, I had five successful companies. I was making a lot of money. I had all the success, the trap of a successful man, you know, from the, the house on the ocean to a wonderful wife, two kids, just a beautiful life with a lot of materialistic things in it. But you know what? I just wasn't that happy. And I don't think I was that good of a person, quite frankly, in retrospect. And and so at around that time in my life, I made two major, major discoveries or breakthroughs. And the very first one was, was that I had been raised in reverse. And what I realized, and it has been one of the, the mantras the whole rest of my life, is that it's not about have, then do, then you get to be happy. It's about personal development. It's about emotional fitness. It's about mental toughness first in a way where you are your best self showing up to this world. So it's reverse. And I would tell any person in business, I'd tell any young person, I'd tell anyone going into a marriage, any, in any setting, you got to be first. Then you can do good work. And then you can have whatever you want. And the world is, is unlimited in wealth and in, in great things. But you have to be first. And so I spent, you know, in my early 30s, man, the next solid year unwinding companies, creating exit strategies, and then deciding what the hell do I want to do when I grow up? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. How do you end up? How does a guy go from, you know, these five successful businesses and then you end up in executive coaching and transforming people's lives? Which, by the way, when you talked about transactional before, I I constantly try to teach younger lawyers at my firm the difference between transactional relationships and transformational relationships and, and the fundamental difference between that. So Tell, but tell us how do how do you end up in executive coaching, changing other people's lives? Like, what's that journey? What's the story? Yeah, well, that? well, you know, first of all, as I said, I had to go to work on myself first, and so I created exit strategies out of those companies, which is a scary thing to do when you got two little kids and a wife, and you got bills to pay. But I had done fairly well financially, and I had liquidity events, so I I had the privilege to be able to take about six to nine months off. And just say, look, I'm going to reboot. I'm going to go to work from on myself and, and just decide what do I want to do if it was my ikigai? What would that be? And, um, and so at, at that point, I said, well, I knew what, my, what I loved doing. I, I loved public speaking. Um, and I was okay at it, but I wasn't great at it at the time. I was always pretty good at, at sales and sales training. And I always had good business acumen, and I had a lot of street smarts. And, and I loved the idea of helping others to really turn their dreams into their reality. So those were kind of the, the foundation. But again, I had to work on myself. I had to embrace something called life mastery. And, and it's, it's something I, I tell all of our coaches. Fortune's got about 150 coaches around the country. And I tell them, look, if you haven't last mastered life yourself, then there's no way you should be coaching our clients. You, you need to walk your own talk. And that means, and life mastery means, it, here's the good and the bad news of life mastery. The good news is you got to focus on si only six things. Maybe the not so good news is it's got to be all six. 
And it doesn't mean you got to be perfect. There's no such thing as perfect in this world. But you have to at least tap into as much potential in yourself that you can in those six areas. And what are those? That is emotional mastery. It's 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 physical mastery. It is your relationship mastery and, and you know, really priding yourself on being a great communicator. I think it's spiritual mastery, and that can look different for different people. It's career mastery, which has to include power of purpose. And then it's it's financial mastery. And, and those are the six. And so I went to work on myself first, and then I saw how powerful that process could be. And so I said, well, okay, so I'm going to be a better me. And it's amazing. I tell people today, like I just talked to somebody yesterday, a young lady who's she's going through a divorce right now. And, you know, she's trying to figure out what her next step is. And, and so well, the only thing I can tell you is I know you want to get back in a relationship, but what you shouldn't do is go start chasing the man or woman of your dreams. My advice to you is chase a better self. And if you chase a better self, you'd be mad. You could be amazed at who will show up and what will show up in your life. So again, it's about who you're being in this world first. But the second distinction that I had to make there, besides being maybe you know raised in reverse, was that I was not doing purposeful work. And so I said, you know, in my second iteration of my life in entrepreneurhood. I'm going to make sure everything I do is about purposeful work. It's about understanding there's a chapter in my new book that's titled, It's Okay to Do Good by Doing Good Things for Others. And, and that's been a, a huge mantra. And I think it's the mantra that we teach every doctor that we work with today as well. Um, but those two things led me to executive coaching which is all about serving and helping people. And by the way, there's a big difference between being an executive coach or a quote-unquote consultant, right, which, which we don't really see ourselves at in, in any of my companies. Um, but that's what led me to it. And, and then one thing led to another. As far as the focus drilling down deep on, on dentistry and veterinary medicine and certain elements of, of, of medicine as well, which we are in uh, today, was really that the typical doctor is really set up a little bit to fail in the fact that they have to spend a minimum of, you know, four years of postgraduate work to become a doctor or a uh, or a dentist or whatever they are. And unfortunately, the the dichotomy of this is, is they've got to really be technically good, but yet then the only way they're going to monetize all that is to actually go out and learn how to run a small business. Now, that's changing a little bit in today's era with, you know, corporate dentistry and DSOs. And I know we'll probably touch on some of that. Because that does offer a professional, like a dentist, another path where they don't necessarily have to to uh, run their own business. But you know, remember, Fortune is now thirty five years old. So thirty five years ago, if you were going to do very very well in this country as a dentist, and I still believe you still do the best, is if you can control your own destiny, own the asset, and and run your own business. Right. So we saw this huge need. 35 years ago, and and I had uh, some wonderful mentor partners that we we put it all together with, and and the the rest is history. Fortune today is the leading and the largest executive coaching and practice management company, to my knowledge, in the world for dentists for sure. With again, strong veterinary division, um, elective care medicine, uh, but I think all of it has been about doing good for others, you know, and at the same time, you should fall in love with business. So that that's kind of my abbreviation of, you know, 35 years of how we got to today. Okay. Well, no, it's a great backdrop. And before I, I dive into some philosophical questions, just because I think it's, it's noteworthy, what might be some um, misconceptions people have about 
executive coaching, practice management, you know, because people hear that and, you know, they, they may have preconceived notions on what it is or what it isn't. What might be some of the, the, you know, misconceptions on what it is? I think not necessarily what I call the misconceptions, because I think there's a lot of bad advice that gets given and a lot of bad strategies that are, that are actually out there. So if somebody has, you know, opened the wrong door, made the right choice as far as who they hired or who they retained, just like an attorney, you know, this, I mean, no doubt, you know, there's the good, the bad and the ugly of every profession in this world. Right. So, but I I think the misconception is, is that at least from a fortune point of view, is that we're consultants and, you know, here's what has always been offensive to me about the word consulting is that I think too many times consultants will want to come in to somebody's business and they want to put their expectations and maybe their vision and their goals on that particular person that they're supposed to be advising. And I'm sure that happens in the law field as well. I, I In fact, you and I both know we've been, you know, in the middle of deals before where you've got another opposing counsel who has their own agenda that may not even be their client's agenda or they're in the best interest of their client. And it's, to me, it's, it's, it's malpractice, you know? And, and, and so it's the same thing with consultants. So, I mean, what, what we do is we say, look, you know, this is about what's best for you. And this is about your vision. And, and so, like if I take a call from any doctor in the country today, we always start with five questions. And these are five questions that maybe your viewers today should be asking themselves, no matter where they're at in their career, whether they're starting up or whether they're transitioning. But the five questions I will always ask, if you ever call me, I can tell you the five questions, be prepared to answer. Number one is where are you at right now, doctor? Or, or any business person, where are you at right now? And that's a loaded question, right? Because it's it, it can be, yes, how's your business doing? But also, how's your life doing? How's your personal life? How's your health? How's your money? These are, I want to ask those life mastery questions. Where are you at right now? Circa 2023. Second question that we have to get clear about, or any good coach will, is they'll say, well, how'd you get there? Right? So that's either going to be, uh, maybe a nightmare hist- history lesson, or right. it could be a victory lap, depending on if they're how much pain or pleasure that person's in. Third, yeah, where's their mind at? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the third question, probably the most important of the five, which is where do you want to go? If this, if this practice and if this life was amazing, a year, two years, five years from now, if you were making the money you want to make, if you had a great quality of life, if you're proud of what you're doing, what would that look like? And I encourage people to dream greatly. See, consultants don't usually do that, right? They're going to tell you, this is what we can do, and this is how you should grow, and da-da-da-da. Well, not everyone. My experience of working with, for say, for instance, dentists, not all of them want to be conglomerates with 10 or 20 practices. Some really are artists that just want to do really well and have a a great team and a great culture. So we got to ask tons of questions on the front end. Fourth question I always ask is, do you have a plan in place to get yourself there? Or do you think you have a plan? And, you know, some do, most don't. And then the fifth question I always said a great coach will will ask is, is, well, how can I help? You know, and, and how can you see us helping you? And what would that look like? So I think that's how a a coach by the way, is nobody that's any better than anybody else. Uh, they're not somebody who sits up on a pedestal or high up in their ivory tower and, and you know pontificates. That is not a great coach. That is, again, sometimes a consultant who has their own agenda. You know, it, it really resonates with me, too, because, you know, as a professional, when you're rendering advice, it's interesting how often attorneys will start telling a client what they think they should do, right? Like right away, they kind of, they, they'll think they have the answers. I've always started similarly with what's your ideal outcome? You know, how can I start advising you, right? If I don't know your ideal outcome, which might 
not be exactly what I think the ideal outcome is. So it's interesting how aligned that is uh, culturally or philosophically, and and you know it makes sense. But isn't it interesting how many people in whether it's uh, executive coaching, law, or any other profession, you know, start with what they think someone should do instead of what the person's ideal outcome is? Kind of interesting. Well, exactly. And again, like like one thing that you and I have in common also is things like practice transitions or even estate planning. You know, so you've got a lot of quote unquote money managers out there, wealth advisors. Again, there's going to be two different types. There's going to be one that's going to sit down ahead of time and say, look, what do you want your lifestyle to look like at 65, 70, 80 years old? And what do you want the outcome? What do you want that to be? And there's going to be other people who are going to sell you products or things like that. That was one of the reasons why we created Sequoia uh, now 25 years ago is because I got tired of watching you know financial planners and money managers be consultants instead of good coaches. So I think it's in every profession. And yeah, for sure it's in law, you know, it, because I have seen way too many, and you have too, that will just, the client brings them on and then they hijack the destination is the easiest way I can say it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I always joke and say that, thank God for the, for those attorneys, because that <laughs> that's, they, they, they automatically distinguish you before you even yeah. get started. But, but let me shift gears on you. Let me shift gears on you. So I wanted to go back to the book, the fortune recipe, not just because you're my guest today and not just because you're, you're a dear friend. I thought it was one of the best uh, books of its type that I've read. And it, and it, and it has a lot of amazing content. Um, so what I'm going to do is kind of put you on the spot a little bit and a little bit for the for the listeners and those watching there's a lot of guiding principles in this book my experience again now i've been representing for about 25 years now entrepreneurs and closely held business owners of all types including as you know many doctors but in all areas and i seem i i always feel like there there's certain guiding principles that people work by live by manage by that are somehow, even if they don't know they're actually doing it, uh, or or that they're, you know, it's their mindset that are kind of woven through their success. So, if you had to only choose one from life or the book, which, but probably based on how great the book is, it's in here. But if there's only one guiding principle that you would tell our entrepreneurs out there that are listening, that you know, in terms of a guiding principle for success that you think is out there. What what is it and and why do you think it's the most important one? Wow, you really you are putting me on the spot with just one because you know the way I wrote that book was a collection of about 50 guiding principles. I know that. That's why yeah, I did this to and, you. <laughs> and by the way, if you look at the tagline, the most important part of the title of that book is not the fortune recipe. It's actually the subtitle, which is essential ingredients for creating your best life. And, and clearly, I did write it from an entrepreneur's view, from a leadership perspective, from a, you know, from, from, from all those angles. And of course, knowing what we've already said, I highly, highly value emotional fitness, mental toughness, and life mastery and bringing the best self to your business. But if we're really going to focus, on the business community and aspiring entrepreneurs, I would say, I, well, I mentioned one of them already, which is okay to do good by doing good things for others. But let me direct it to a, a, a different chapter, which is win-win. Win-win. I don't care what business you're in. If you can put yourself in a mindset, and by the way, there's a lot behind the conversation win-win, and, and there's a whole chapter in the book on it, but I think if anything has helped me more and helped me build a good reputation, by the way, and not burn bridges and never screwed anybody over, it was the concept of win-win, because for you to really embrace that, there's so many behaviors you have to take to really to do that. First of all, you got to be willing to live in an abundant mindset. You got to believe that opportunity is everywhere. If you're willing to look, 
and that there's it's blue ocean out there, that will cause you to look to win-win. I think the other thing is if you know that you're always going to operate from win-win, then you also refuse the opposite, which is playing a zero-sum game. And, and let me tell you, there's a lot of people in business who are running companies, large and small today, who cannot get over this zero-sum game mentality. They believe that their competitor or their employees or the customer or whoever else, but somebody's got to lose for them to be more profitable. And that is such a horrible, horrible mindset. You and I know because we have worked so much on on transitions and sales and partnerships and a lot of legal work we've we've done together. And and you know now, we at Fortune will not put our name on something if it's clearly win-lose. I will tell our clients, our own clients that we represent, I go, look, if you want us to set this deal up so that there's a clear-cut loser on the other side of this, I don't want in. I'm out. I won't put my name on it. I won't put our company's good name on it. So, and, and the reason, and they'll say, well, you know, you represent me. And I'll say, yeah, but it, it doesn't have to be that way. In other words, you're better off creating a business, a relationship, and it's the same internal in your company too. In other words, I don't want my employees or, or our partners at Fortune or any, any of my companies, I don't want them playing a zero-sum game with me. And I don't want to play a zero-sum game with them too. I want to say, look, a high tide raises all ships in the ocean, right? Or in the harbor. And it's, and so it's got to be with the people on the inside of your organization. It's got to be with your customers. It's got to be with your competitors. It's got to be wherever you go. I think if, if you, by the way, you're hearing my wife's uh, skeleton making noise in the background here. It's Halloween, Halloween right? get ready. <laughs> And I just clapped my hands, which triggered it. Um, but I think if there's one principle, it's lead with your giving hand. It's 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 always be willing to do good for others. I, I just think if you were to build any organization in the world on that, you're not going to be far from good. Enjoying the show so far? We've received fantastic feedback since we started, and we love your questions. Entrepreneurs face unique challenges, and as a corporate attorney and CEO, Bill understands that. Whether it's your first location, industry regulations, succession plans, or exit strategies for your business, the journey is rarely a smooth one. Mandelbaum Barrett PC offers listeners of this podcast a 20-minute consultation with their award-winning team. From mergers and acquisitions to litigation, they help entrepreneurs navigate new opportunities, get invaluable insights, and support to not just survive, but thrive. Click the link in the episode description or visit mblawfirm.com for details. Once again, it's mblawfirm.com. Now, back to our show. Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a great answer. I was curious which one you were going to come up with because there, there, there are so many great pearls of wisdom in here. Um, and, and I couldn't agree more. See, see Bill, I, Bill, here's what I do. I, I come up with a different one with every podcast. So that was the one thing. Okay. No, I'm kidding. I'm, well, I'm joking. No, I think that is paramount. I mean, I think there's a ton of them because like I said, I really think it's the culmination if someone was to take all 50 of those principles and really like baking a cake, used it as a recipe, which is what the subtitle is, or the title of the book is, I think it can only do good for yeah. people. Well, you, when you talk about win-win too, you know, you made me think of a story and because you said a couple of things too, one of which was it goes to your own reputation, what people think of you, just the respect that you have from others. It's not just clients, it's it, it's or or customers it's in the community itself it's it's people that are at the other side of the table and it struck me i remember uh having a transaction with an attorney and uh the guy was older older than i am and he said oh 
is Mr. Mandelbaum still practicing? My mentor, Barry Mandelbaum. And I said, yeah, he's still very actively practicing. And he says, 35 years ago, now here's a guy, 35 years ago, he had one transaction with him and it was a real estate transaction. And he said, oh, I'll never forget that guy. He's the one of the greatest lawyers, one of the nicest people. And, you know, he had all the leverage on this transaction. And I was a young lawyer and I didn't know very much. And I was going to be eaten alive by this guy. And I realized what, as it was concluding very successfully, he got everything that he needed and let me get some things from my client that made my client feel great. That did not disadvantage his client at all. And he's like, when I reflect on it, it, it taught me about how to practice law to, to your point, Bernie, right? It, it, his whole story, yeah. 35 years later, he's telling me a story about a guy he had one transaction with. But the impression it made because he created a win-win when he could have gone with zero-sum game and annihilated the guy because he had all the leverage, but he didn't do it. Um, so I think that, that there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift on you. But I also want to just make one other comment, and this a, a, applies a lot to your field of law, which is think about how much less litigation we would have in this country and in business if people would all come to the table with a win-win attitude. Yeah. In other words, why do we have litigation? We usually have litigation because all else has failed, right? So now we go to the lowest common denominator, you know, which is we got to go with the law now, Yeah. right? And, and those are usually not good endings. Even for the winners, it's not good endings. It's not. And, and you know, not to beat beat the, the point to death, but you just made me think of another story, which a lot of, I actually just read it about recently. And it's the relationship between Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Yeah. Who, who could have not have been at more polar ends of their political views. And uh, for those people who have ever read books on either of them, they considered each other good friends. Uh, they would meet privately and try to come to consensus and create win-win scenarios. And I, you know, you sometimes wonder what what could government look like with people like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill still in government. But and I'm not a political guy, but the point is they always tried to work it out and came from the best situation from a win-win. And I think today people almost can't even imagine that scenario. So yeah, let it, me jump to mentors. Yeah, kinda, I want to talk about I mean, mentors. It kind of it kind of saddens me too, because you know, Ronald Reagan was a master at that, not just with like Tip O'Neill, but look what he did with Gorbachev, you know? Yeah. So I mean he did it on a worldwide scale. And and I what saddens me and troubles me a little bit, and I don't want to go off on this ph philosophical conversation. I, I put you there, so it's my fault. <laughs> but but no, I just hope that the young, the, the younger generations can get back to some of that thinking because obviously we're in a little bit of a polarized country right now and in a polarized world, and and that's sad. But not everything's black and white, you know, most of the world is gray. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And so, you know, one of the things I wanted to make sure I don't miss is talking a little bit. Uh, I mentioned a little bit about my mentor is talking briefly about mentors. And I know that you've had a number of them. And again, I'm going to do the same thing to you again, which is, you know, when you reflect on your your life, your career, you know, who's a mentor in there that just sticks out to you as someone who you think, because remember, the name of this show is Fingerprints on Success. And yeah. someone who had their fingerprints all over your success. And tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I'm just going to nail one, it would probably be my co-founder of Fortune Management, Dr. Gary McLeod, and who who really allowed me to, to kind of be my, my real self and the leader and to take fortune to where it is today. But... Even before that, it was just he's a he was a really brilliant guy and still is today. He's he's well into his 80s. We still talk on a regular basis. And um, it was just the way he went about things, and, and it was about his uncommon thinking and his vision. And if I'm to cheat a little on the answer, I would also tell you that some of the greatest mentors that I've had have come from the books that I've read. You know, and I put in that new book, um, 
just a, a little short list of the books that impacted my life the most. Um, I think, you know, it should be mandatory reading things like Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And, um, and, and Tony Robbins did a great job with his second book, Awaken the Giant Within, I thought was, was phenomenal. Um, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, and I could go on and on, but so, so some of them, and you know, it's funny in my earliest, earliest entrepreneurial thought process, um, I read a book when I was probably 18, 19 years old that really put me on an entrepreneurial trajectory. And that was Iacocca, Lee hmm. Iacocca, who uh, he's gone now, but a brilliant guy who, you know, not only helped to create the Ford Mustang, but took Chrysler out of bankruptcy and just so still a great book today, you know. So some of those folks, and and you know, and then I've always I, I think I don't know if call ment mentors, but I've also had some idols, you know, like okay. if I was gonna tell you a real life idol that sure. that, uh, that that I always used to love as a kid growing up was Dean Martin. I thought he was the well, king. Well, now you got to tell us why why Dean Martin. Because he was the <laughs> king of cool. He was the king of cool, and he did so many different things. When this kid was a uh, when he was a kid, he was a prize fighter back in in New York, and then he he was a a blackjack dealer, and then he went to you know to vaudeville and hooked up with Lewis uh, Jerry Lewis, and and then there was the acting, there was the singing, there was a great little story about him. And if you ever you know, there's a great movie out. It's an autobiography, and they interview all kinds of celebrities that knew dean martin and um it's called the K dean martin king of cool and they said one of the coolest things about him was by the time nbc came to him and wanted him to do the variety show which was i believe in the 70s probably late 70s mid 70s and by that time dean martin was he was already the king of cool but they wanted him to do this sunday night tv show which went on to be massively successful for a decade but Dean Martin, who was also a scratch golfer, avid golfer, he went to NBC and he said, I'll do it. He goes, but he goes, here's the gig. He goes, I don't rehearse. He goes, everything's got to be spontaneous. And he goes, and I, I'm going to go play a round of golf on Sunday at Riviera Country Club that, or, or Lake, Lakeside. It was one of those two that he was a member of. And what he would do is he'd play golf. He'd go take a shower. He'd show up at NBC Studios in Burbank, and they would do the show. And so if you ever go back and look at that TV show, he never rehearsed, never did it. All it was ad-lib. Now, everybody around him, his, his guests, his, his cast, his orchestra, everything else, they rehearsed all week. But Dean Martin never did. And it was some of the most spontaneous comedy. And he'd crack up. He'd screw up. He'd do all kinds of things. And, you know, that's been kind of one of my mantras for whenever I've done, and I do, obviously, I've done a ton of public speaking. I'm very comfortable in front of a room, but I don't rehearse. <laughs> I think, I, I think, I think sometimes PowerPoint these days is a hindrance to me, you know, but, but yeah. I always respected that guy for that. Well, I, I take the same approach to, the, to this podcast. So hopefully it's not obvious because <laughs> <laughs> you, well, you don't want to, you don't want to quash the. You don't want to quash the natural uh, conversation. So, Bernie, so next question for you. Right now, entrepreneurs that are out there listening to our, our podcast are always trying to think about what's something that's the next thing to be concerned about, the next thing to be navigating or working through, or something maybe that you see already that you're dealing with, that your company's dealing with, that you might share with our folks out there to give them a sense of of something that you know is on your mind as the CEO of a very entrepreneurial yeah, I, I, I'll uh, I'll give you maybe two or three, and I'm going to preface it by also pointing out there is a Chinese symbol that absolutely represents danger, but at the same time represents opportunity. So any great entrepreneur, and again, this is why no matter what we talk about, whatever we talk about, if we want to talk about the problem or the danger. Uh, it's just an, after you've been at things for a while, like you and I have, everything just becomes another one of those, right? 
you you learn to mm-hmm. not get too high, too low on any of these things. But I think that um, you know when I when I talk about that stuff, it that so that in itself comes back to emotional fitness and mental toughness. And and people will watch the leaders of organizations when there's times of crisis. I I've I've always said that anybody can manage a situation, whether it be a country, a company, whatever it is. I think you can manage things when things are going okay or they're stable. But where real leadership needs to show up is when all hell is breaking loose, when interest rates are now at 8% in this country, or when you've got countries at war or terrorism or other things, that's when real leaders have to appear. Now, if I'm going to dive down a little deeper, uh, as most of your listeners, but well, you know, maybe your listeners don't know, but Fortune as an organization, which really has at any given time about 1,200 dental practices under management, um, we stand for the preservation of private practitioner dentistry in this country. And the reason I think that that is something that needs to be front and center it's not just because of private equity and DSOs coming in into play into the into their space, but it's bigger than that. And the bigger than that is, is that it's about standard of care and it's part of our healthcare sector of our economy. And I can speak first person to this. I remember when my wife and I had just gotten married. For, we're going to have our 40th wedding anniversary next year. When she, when we first got married, she was a practice administrator for four very prominent cardiologists and internal medicine folks in San Francisco. And these men and women were at the top of their game. I mean, they, one of them pioneered the rotoblade. Another one was on the pioneer team for the angioplast, you know, cutting edge medicine. And these folks 40 years ago were probably making seven figures a year for practicing medicine. Now, that the good and the bad of that. The good is they lived great lives and and they they still are, most of them are still living today and I know them. The bad news is though is they put no value in things like practice management. They put no value in really guiding and building an enterprise and protecting their own profession. So, it's like anything else. What happened in medicine is there was an unholy triumvirate that was waiting there to handle their profession. And we all know what those are. Those are big hospital administrations. This is big pharma. And this is the insurance industry. And so now you look 40 years later, medicine for the most part is broken. And it saddens me because it's broken in a time. When we know more, have better drugs, better technology, better diagnostics than we've ever had to keep a human being alive longer than ever. But at the same time, the system itself is broken. And so I want to make, make sure that as much as we can do, we don't want that to happen to dentistry. And the way that we, we, we don't let that happen is by preserving private practitioner care in this country. Now, I don't care if our entre, cause we, we want our clients to be entrepreneurial. It's what we stand for. We tell a dentist today, look, in a perfect scenario, if you want, you can get paid four ways. They go, really? Four ways? I go, yeah, you can get paid for holding the handpiece which is what you were always going to get paid for doing as a professional. I go, well, let's understand something. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has plagued all professionals since the beginning of time, and this includes lawyers, it includes doctors, dentists, architects, CPAs, all of the above, is that all of them, even if they're the best at their trade, they can have really well-paying hourly jobs or billable hours. But the problem is, is they're not building something that that can can give them the ability to maybe make money while they sleep, build a company. They're just trading time for dollars. And that's a job. I don't care. It can be the, the highest paid brain surgeon in the world. 
it's still a J-O-B because the minute they go take their family to Europe, the, the money stops coming in. So bottom line is, is we say, look, it's okay to do what you were trained to do. And you can do that as long as you want, or it could be an optional fourth way. But here's the other three ways that we'd like to make sure you know are available to you. We want you to get paid as the CEO of your practice. We want you to get paid as the investor or shareholder of your practice. And we want you to, in a perfect scenario, pay yourself rent by owning the real estate that your your practice is in or other real estate, right? So we we we're fine with them growing big enterprises. We have a whole division of our company called F50, which you know you sit on the advisory board of which is all about dentrepreneurs, right? Who maybe aspire to build 20, 10 or 20 locations and we teach them how to scale, how to lead and how to really do all that. Um, but the challenge with private equity coming in and not all DSOs are bad. We There are some that we really like, but there are some that are strictly about transactional dentistry and private equity. And the person who's going to end up paying the price is going to be the American consumer. And so I think that's something that we have to all be mindful of. That's why we created a sister company called True Blue, which is all a, a platform for private practitioner dentists where we can level the fee, the playing field at maybe 20 different line items on a doctor's P&L to help them to compete with better insurance reimbursements or better buying power or all kinds of things so that we can level the playing field. Because we don't want to have a country without private practitioners who are in control of the standard of care. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And for you know, the myriad of business owners and entrepreneurs that we have out there as as listeners, what you've really struck a chord on and touched on is what we would call in, in my business or in other places, the 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 risk or the the ramifications potentially of consolidation, right? Because whether it's dentistry that you very artfully described, other types of healthcare, veterinary, it it, it can be, it's happening with accounting firms right now. Accounting firms are being bought up by private equity and consolidated. It's happening with behavioral health centers. Um, you know, whenever private equity identifies a segment of the marketplace where they they view that consolidation and creation of certain business efficiencies, et cetera, can yield a big return. Suddenly, it's something they're interested in consolidating. It's happened in uh, optom optometry, um, and and you know I think to your point, Vet veterinary medicine, which you guys are big in, right? Yeah, we it's happening, and 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 again, you can't blame private equity because private equity is in business to get a trying to make money. Turn it's very transactional, right? It's all about and and so you look at dentistry, for instance. And you see dentistry, if it's a well-run group of practices that is literally dropping 20 points to EBITDA, then private equity is going to look at it and lick their chops and say, look, we get to park a bunch of our cash at a 20% cash-on-cash return in a tax-deferred environment, um, and, and it's very low risk. And we're going to make a big payday on the equity when we right. catch out on it. So you can't blame them, but at the same time, uh, well, that leads me to the second concern I have right now. The second concern I have is, is because of the interest rates. What we're seeing now is so many of these doctors who were successful private practitioners who have now drank the Kool-Aid sold their practices, and then reinvested their money back into these private equity firms on the promise that they were going to get recapitalization events, and also on the, the promise that they were hooking their car to a successful organization. Well, here's what, what happened or what is happening as we speak. You've got a lot of not so much the private equities that were sitting on a ton of cash and don't have any debt. But un unfortunately, what started happening about five years ago 
is you had a lot of greed factor being dr- driving individuals who did not have private equity behind them, who were going out and borrowing large sums of money at variable rates. Okay, so now we've got an 8%. I mean, I can tell, I'm not going to mention any names, but I know of one right now where they went out and they borrowed a ton of money to consolidate about 60 practices from private practitioners. And now they've got variable rate money and this thing is going to, it's going to implode. And, and it's not just one, there's a whole sector of these DSOs. And this is really, to be honest with you, it's not being talked about yet too much, but yep. it's, it's going to happen. And you, I know you're going to see it and we're going to have to go in and probably pick up the pieces. And the people I'm concerned about is our either former clients or, or, or great doctors who thought that they were really going to have a, a great end of their career who have now are, are, are going to have some problems. Yeah. So those are concerns I have. No, I, and and they're valid ones, and and they are big in dentistry and veterinary right now, and they're transcendent transcending into various professions where consolidation has happened. So, um, I think it's it's a great point. So I want to respect your time, and I want to ask you one last question. Um, it's a forward looking question. So, and and I love to ask this of 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 all entrepreneurs when. What's got Bernie Stoltz excited every day? When you when you wake up and make that fabulous cup of coffee, which I've had at your house before, what's got you excited going forward that that you're pumped up about? Well, I think for me personally, I'm in a different phase of my entrepreneurial life now. And uh, it really probably started when I turned 60, which was a few years ago. And I remember one of my other mentors coming to me and reminding me that I was turning 60, but also reminding me that it can be the greatest decade of my life. And even 70s, if you take really good care of your health. And of course, I asked, I go, why do you say that? And he goes, because I, he goes, I know you've probably financially done done pretty good. I also believe you have a mind of your own and you don't, I think as people get older, and I think this starts happening maybe even when you turn 50, you don't care about other people's opinions quite as much. Um, and it's your kids are usually raised. Uh, I, I saw an interview with somebody the other day and they go, you know, I love this part of my face because where I used to have to worry about my kids, now my kids worry about me because <laughs> I, I don't worry about them anymore. You know, and I'm, I'm just about there, you know, on a personal side and, and if you can, you know, keep a marriage together, it's even more fun. And but but I also think that in in my life now, the most precious currency that I have is no longer wealth because I've got more than I can ever, you know, I'm not bragging, but I mean I my needs are met and I live an incredible lifestyle. But I think as you get into that phase as an entrepreneur, it's about freedom and time. Those are your most precious commodities. And, you know, I just, I, some bells went off uh, a few months ago, actually, when I saw a interview uh, of Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who's, you know, $100 billion guy, way sure. beyond uh, me and you, but well, maybe not beyond you, but beyond me. <laughs> but uh, be quite an hourly rate. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but bottom line is he, he did an interview and he goes, you know, he goes, at this point in my career, he goes, first of all, he goes, I don't set any meetings before 10 a.m. in the morning. He goes, because I still got some teenagers at home. I love coffee. I love to putter around the house. He goes, and I'm not that big of a morning person. He goes, so he goes, so from about whenever I wake up till about 10, he goes, I enjoy my coffee. I putter. Or I converse with my family. He goes, it's really healthy for me. He goes, I really enjoy that. He goes, and but then he goes, the next framework I do is I set it up so that maybe from about 10 in the morning to maybe 12, I call that my zone of genius. He goes, and it is not my job on a daily basis as an entrepreneur to make a thousand decisions or to manage anything. He goes, my job is to make anywhere from zero to maybe four or five decisions, powerful decisions that can affect 
trajectories of my companies. He goes, but if I do that every day or not even every day, then I'm good. And so I really, really modeled that. I mean, and so what I'm trying to do in the next phase and what's really got me juiced is servant leadership. It's about empowering the other people. You know, they say that one of the the definitions of a, a new entrepreneur is how many CEOs can you have that report to you? So I, I have this great benefit that I now have four CEOs of four different but connected companies that I get to coach from a, from a chairman's standpoint. And it's freeing to me, but yet I'm still doing incredible, purposeful and good work. But I'm paying it forward to the next generations of our companies. And what's great about it is, is I got time to think more, you know, and I've got time to really make better decisions now. And I've got time to take care of myself more. And again, some people will look at me today and they go, oh, man, well, that, that's great for you. No, no, no. Th- this was 40 years in the making. So it didn't happen overnight. And, and I think there's people even in my own company that, you know, think, I, you know, that I'm the luckiest guy in the world, which I think I am, too. But bottom line is, is there was a lot of hard work behind that, you know. But, it, but it's great to see your, your work. Um, evolve and be able to do that so you can go to a new phase, you know? And I think everybody should continually be looking at what is the next phase of your entrepreneurial future. Well, I think that's a a perfect place to end it. And I want to thank you, Bernie, for coming on the show today. I think that our listeners, business owners, and entrepreneurs out there around the country will really enjoy your story. And, um, you know, I can't thank you enough, really. uh, Very grateful that you spent some time with us today. Well, thank you. And, you know, one of the greatest decisions that that I made and we made at Fortune now, probably well over a decade ago, was to partner with you, Bill, and with Mandelbaum Barrett. And I'm so, so grateful and, and happy for all that you guys are doing and that we're doing together. And it's a pleasure to spend some time. And uh, I will see you soon, my friend. And I'll end this like I end my book and my emails and my speeches and everything else with one simple word, which is mahalo. And uh, for most people that uh, are accustomed to the Hawaiian uh, spirit, they know what it really means. It doesn't just mean thank you. It means with ultimate gratitude and respect. So from me to you, brother, mahalo. Thanks, Purdy. It was great being on with you. Take care. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Fingerprints on Success podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on your chosen platform that you are listening to us on. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share this episode with them or post it on your social media to share with your friends. You can catch the show notes for this episode and any mentioned links in the description of this episode. Mandelbaum Barrett PC specializes in partnering with successful business owners and proven entrepreneurs on all of their legal matters. Visit www.mblawfirm.com for more information. Once again, it's www.mblawfirm.com. We'll see you on the next episode.